This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled How to Enjoy Life with Bipolar Disorder. Hmm. Subtitled, Your Tow Truck is Waiting. I love the title. My author, joining me from California, is Ann Latta Donnan. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to have this chance to talk about this illness. This is a this is a, a, a probably a very needed book. Uh, many people don't understand what the term bipolar means. It is a uh, phrase that has been bantied about in the medical community and the and in the health community for a while. Share a little of your story and how this book got to be written. Okay. Well, bipolar one is the most severe form of it. That's what I have. Then there's bipolar 2, where the manic episodes are not as pronounced. And then there's cyclothymia, where the person cycles uh, hours at a time. Instead of, in my case, I would cycle two or three times a year. Mm. And um, I came to write the book because um, I had talked to a lot of people, and they said, well, you need to write this down to help people. Because it started when I was 12 years old. And I went to many psychiatrists, and they were not able to diagnose it till I was 19. Wow. So I had seven long years of cycling, and um, looking back and knowing what we know today, they probably would be able to have diagnosed it, but uh, they didn't know much about it then. And you use the term cycling. You're not referring to an athletic event. This is this is actually oh, no, an emotional no. roller coaster. Cycling from, from manic to depressive, and then having a normal period for a while, and then cycling again. Incredible. And looking back uh, at 12 years of age, and I'm not going to ask your age, but how did you uh, how did you exhibit uh, what were the what were the first signs of uh, of this hitting you well it always seemed to start in the fall when school started i would get really keyed up with all the events i was talking 90 miles an hour i was not making sense i was hallucinating that i was floating down the street like 6 inches above the sidewalk and mm. i'd move my arms like waving like i was swimming mm-hmm. moving forward and right just looked and acted crazy, and a lot of people just thought this was my personality, that um, I had teenage hormones kicking in, and the first two times I was hospitalized, they just put me on tranquilizers, and the mood ends in two to three months or weeks, depending on the person. In my case, it was two to three months after being on tranquilizers. I would just come down and be back to normal. And they didn't know until it happened again and again and again. Did you have any uh, incidences of this in your family? I, for example, if I look at my family well, history, there are things yes. that, that kind of yes, my trend. mother had something very similar. Okay, and were you aware of it as you were a child uh, in that environment, or was this something uh, you discovered I later? Was Twelve. What's uh, interesting 12. is hmm. that see, it often comes out at puberty or at life change in your 40s and 50s, you know, menopause. Right. 
Um, and so it happened to me and my mother at the same time. That's amazing. You yeah. ha- you have a and you have been able to function well. I mean, you are you have a degree. You have uh, been a teacher. You have been in in uh, instructional uh, areas and working with people and children. Uh, so this is not something that completely controlled your life. It became something well, that was controllable. Yes, it did. I had to just drop out of what I was doing when I felt bad. I dropped out of school a number of times just because I simply couldn't deal with Hmm. going to class and sitting for an hour, let alone sitting six hours a day. I just couldn't do it. I was too keyed up. I had to walk around quickly, talk quickly. Uh, I I just was not able to go to school. So I went to summer school every year and made up my grades and got good grades that way. And then it took me five years to get through college and get a bachelor of science degree in architecture which I was really happy to do. I wow. was really glad uh, that I could achieve that. I know of some people that take 10, 15, 20 years to get out of college, so five years is not a bad uh, time frame, I don't think, in uh, completing and getting a right. degree. <laughs> you... Right. Well, I had to deal with the illness. You know, and sure. I had to drop out three times, so right. that was why. You also, uh, But you... I'm thankful. I have wonderful parents who helped me through this, and they kept saying, we know something's wrong, we don't know what it is, but we're going to stick with it until we find out what it is. And like I said, I saw a lot of psychiatrists and was hospitalized. Hmm. On my third hospitalization is when they decided what it was. They diagnosed me correctly. And how how long ago was that that you were diagnosed properly? I was 19. You were 19. I'm 66 now. Well, I didn't want to know that you were over 60, but that's okay. I, I, I wasn't going to ask your age, but thanks for sharing oh, it. Oh, <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. I, I meant to say that, see, it happened to me all a long time ago. Sure. And since I've been on the medicine, um, I'd say it cures about 80 to 85% of the illness. The other 15% is that I have to sleep well, eat well, not get very stressed, you know, just avoid right. situations where I'm going to be stressed. And, um, you know, eating a healthy diet, all this being healthy in every way possible helps a person with mental illness. Now, you sound like a very intelligent lady with a high IQ. I don't know if it's high IQ or not, but is there any correlation to, uh, I was going to use the word brilliance, I don't want to uh, assume that you are brilliant, but I think you are, uh, putting that kind of uh, stress on a person, would that possibly be a contributing factor? Yes, I think that a lot of creative people are very easily stressed. Um, They can live in a world of creativity, beautiful artists just using gorgeous colors. Like I really relate to Vincent Van Gogh because he most likely had this. Hmm. And he had tremendous creative periods, but then he had months and months and years even when he was in a sanitarium, and all that they could do was put him in hot baths and uh, have him walk in the garden, and he painted and you know, he there there wasn't any medicine for them in those days. Absolutely, so I'm very amazing. lucky. We're we're all very lucky if you have a family member who has this. It's one more thing I need to say that's important. If you're worried about a loved one having it, you have to make sure they get off alcohol and drugs before you can make a diagnosis. The doctor simply cannot tell if a person's strung out on something like an amphetamine or a euphoric or whatever. It's going to confuse the doctor and uh, and family members as well, that it's highly, highly important for the person to be free of alcohol and drugs. Good advice. You also have obviously, or I won't say obviously, but apparently a, a, 
a fairly good, strong support system surrounding you in the uh, in the range of people, and um, not only the medical staff, but others that have have assisted you on the way. Right, right. Well, I say the first credit. Um, I have a strong belief in God, and I believe that God wanted me to go through this. And I didn't really understand why until I started writing the book, and then I realized that it could help other people. Um, I did not enjoy going through it again. People go, wasn't it cathartic? No, (laughs) it was a pain. I hated it. But I did it to help others. And my story is pretty typical. It's unique according to your personality. Uh, But the, the, the symptoms are typical that a depressed person doesn't want to walk, talk, he doesn't want to do anything, just wants to sit there. Just depressing. Mm. It's so hard to deal with. And then the manic episode, you're talking so quickly, it'd be hard for a doctor to talk to you to get a word in edgewise. Amazing. Did you have other family members that also were diagnosed with similar challenges? Or were uh, you an only child? Yes, right. How long did it take, Anne, to, to get your story into print? Well, it took me 10 years because I wrote it. Uh, and I had a book group who read every part of the book, and every chapter we'd go through and correct each other's work. I'd read theirs, they'd read mine, and then we'd meet together and share all of our conclusions, and then I'd rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So I'd say it took me about an hour a page, but it took me years to redo each page. I tried to make it as perfect as possible. Anything that will be a surprise in here to people who may have been exposed to to the uh, the joys of uh, bipolar disorder? Well, parts of it are very funny. You know, you say things that are complete nonsense, and when someone tells you about it later, you can laugh. Like, my children were 11 and 13, and I told my daughter, the 13-year-old, I said, now give Christopher a bath. Like, that's a joke, because he's been taking his own baths for eight years. Right. And I said, give him a bath, and don't pull the plug or he'll go out with the bath water. Uh-huh. And, see, I could say it in a normal, sound like a normal person. Sounds but like a normal humor, completely yes. completely crazy. Well, it's, I think it's kind of funny myself. That I, yeah, I, I, do, I do, too. My daughter was able to laugh about it, but at the time, it's kind of scary, like your mother's so out of it that she's saying this with a straight face. Well, I, I, I think that my kids must, I, I might be diagnosed the same way then with some of my uh, offhanded remarks. People think I'm a little strange, but it's not just well, that. Well, you know, I hear this a lot. A lot of people tell me, I think I'm manic depressive, and let me say this. It's like if you are like a bomb going off, exploding in a million pieces, and other people are left to pick up the packages and put, mm-hmm. put, put, put a person back together, and you do this over and over again, several times a year for decades, and if you're put in a straight jacket and you're meant to stay that way so you won't hurt yourself, mm. and things like that, and especially being diagnosed from a doctor, being hospitalized, hospitalized is very necessary, hospitalization, and medicine. So people saying to me, well, I think I'm manic depressive. No, I don't think so. Unless you've been diagnosed and, you know, it's really severe. It's much more severe than I was speeded up oh. or I said something embarrassing. Absolutely. Well, I I, uh, I have a weird personality. I don't think I'm manic, but uh, uh, that, uh, that could always change if I had diagnosis done, I guess. What would you say are some of the reoccurring uh, symptoms that someone that has a family member that perhaps is a little on the edge and, and can consider this as a possibility? 
Well, one of the key things is the cycling, that they would change a lot. Right. So they could be talkative for, and I'm saying average, average of two to three months, the person would be very keyed up, then would get very depressed and just want to sleep all the time, hmm. get up, take a shower, eat some food, and go back to bed. Wow. That would be the life of a depressed person. And then they may feel normal for three, four, or five months, and you think everything's all over when it happens again. So the key to diagnosing it is the cyclical nature of it going up and down and, you know, then having a normal period where everyone thinks, oh, you're completely normal. Hmm. What would you say is the most important fact that you want to convey in your book, How to Enjoy Life? Well, I think that the key to enjoying life is to do everything the doctors say. And it's hard at first. You know, it's like going on a diet where you say, well, I can't have chocolate and I can't have wine. Um, your doctor's going to tell you uh, that you need to take these pills every day, morning and night, and there's a lot of pills that I take. And um, they slow you down a bit. They hinder getting done what you want to done. And they take away your euphoric highs. I don't hallucinate anymore. Hmm. And things like that, it's hard to get the person to keep taking them because they say, oh, I feel so good, I don't need the pills. What they don't understand is that they're going to crash and have a terrible depression if they don't stay on the pills all the time. Your subtitle, Your Tow Truck is Waiting, Significance and What's the Meaning of That? Uh, well, I went into uh, the uh, Kaiser Clinic Mental Health and I parked my car, and I was about six inches too short, so I wanted to pull my foot in a little bit further inside the space, and I was driving with my left foot because I had my right foot in a cast, and I mm -hmm. couldn't drive with that. So my foot slipped, and my car went through a wall. Ooh. It's a concrete block wall all the way through. You know, the front hood went through it. Wow. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to be here forever. So I called a tow truck, and then I decided to go ahead with my therapy, and I had my hour therapy, and I came out, and the receptionist said, your tow truck is waiting, and that made it sound to everyone there <laughs> that I was the idiot who drove through the wall, because they're all <laughs> gathered around looking at the tow truck pulling my car out. Incredible. And on the front of my book is a pumpkin coach, because I thought it was like Cinderella. You know, I felt like that, like I was the poor girl who had to scrub the floors, hmm. and then I ended up as a princess. You know, my life just became wonderful as soon as I was able to regulate it and uh, become cycle-free. And recap for my listeners how you would describe this book. Well, it's a helpful book for someone who has a mental illness, and there are many of them, and they manifest in different ways. So it's very helpful to see one person's story of going through it and the support system I had and the fact that I take all the medicines on time in the way I'm supposed to. And it also helps people with other mental illnesses as well as anyone who's struggling with something like alcoholism or, you know, any lifestyle change that they need to make and they need to follow doctor's orders and stay on a program. It shows the, or, or the uh, necessity of that. Then also to some unfortunate parents who've had a child die from this, the suicide mm. rate is very high. And, uh, you know, because you don't know what's going on, and then it, you think you're getting well, and then it happens again. Episode w tends to get worse than the previous one. Would you call your book inspirational? Yes, triumphant. I, uh, I work hard, and I triumph over it. And I have to talk about it a lot to my husband and to my friends, and 
they kind of know what's going on, but I have to explain to them that some days I don't feel well and can't do anything, but most of the time I'm doing very well. Beautifully done. I, I am thankful that you have uh, penned this, 112 pages, and have spent the time to not only express the detail of your life, but also some uh, wonderful tips on getting diagnosis and cure, or at least under control, manic depressive disorder. You have entitled it, or have titled it again, How to Enjoy Life with Bipolar Disorder, and your tow truck is waiting as the subtitle. My author guest has been Ann Latta Donnan. Ann, where can my listeners get a copy of this book? Um, it's on eBay and it's on barnesandnoble.com. And are you developing a website or a fan page anywhere? Uh, yeah, I will be. I'm starting that tomorrow. Wonderful. Well, best of luck with this and on your future endeavors. I'm uh, wondering, are you going to maybe do a follow-up book to this one? Yeah, I would like to. If people write in, I'll put my email address in the book, and they can email me and let me know, um, you know, things that they go on with them. And I can work with a psychiatrist who can give the medical background, you know, because I'm just a patient. I'm not an expert the way someone who studies the illness is. I'm just someone who's had it. And I like to say that when I was in the hospital, I was with a lot of other patients with other mental illnesses, and I came to know them and how they were treated. And, again, the most important thing was for them to stay off drugs to have a pure diagnosis. And thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Again, the book, How to Enti- how, excuse me, how to Enjoy Life with Bipolar Disorder, guest, author, and Lada Donnan. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. My thank pleasure. You. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Dance Me Beautiful. And my author who joins me from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, is Deborah Graham. Welcome to the program. Thank you. This is an interesting uh, cover. You have a very vibrant-looking individual that is dancing suspended in air. And, of course, your photo on the back as well. Tell me a little of the the title. Dance Be Beautiful is a a catchy phrase, but what is the significance of that title? The significance is that that ended up being what my journey through dance was, that I had started taking ballroom dance lessons at a time in my life when I didn't feel beautiful at all. And I think 
it's sort of that inside out, outside in thing. So from the inside out, I didn't feel beautiful, which meant that also from the outside in, I didn't see myself as particularly beautiful. And throughout the course of learning to ballroom dance and the journey that it took me on, I ended up uh, sort of leaping into the air like the lovely woman on the uh, on the cover and starting to um, feel beautiful both on the inside and the out. So really, I felt like dance was my teacher in that. Were you an individual? I, I, I describe myself as a, a uh, an, an incredible dancer that uh, cannot keep rhythm with anybody else. <laughs> uh, did you fall in that category, or were you someone that had that fluid, moments, uh, fluid movement anyway and just kind of uh, fell into it quickly? Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> There was nothing fluid and beautiful at the beginning. It was choppy and awkward, and I stepped on my dance teacher's toes, which was bad enough, but then I also stepped on my own toes, which one wouldn't think was possible, but many a time I ended up stepping on my own foot and tripping, and so it was lots of uh, awkward, stumbling, very ungraceful beginnings. What kept you motivated to continue with the uh, torturous process of learning to dance? I think right from the beginning, there was something deep inside of me that knew this is what I needed. And so as I would leave frustrated or discouraged or embarrassed at how uh, awkward I felt and looked and experienced the dance, there was some part of me that must have kept rising up saying, you know, go back, you need this. There's, uh, there were sort of breadcrumbs along the way that this was my path. This is not a an extensive read, a, a 60 pages. How long did it take, Deborah, to, to put your thoughts and your emotions on paper and describe the, the journey? It was actually something that took me a long time because I wrote it contemporaneously with my journey. So mm. this began as my personal journal and journaling the sort of challenges and frustrations and breakthroughs I was having along the way. So over the course of, you know, sort of a year and a half to two years, I was journaling my journey, and it sort of then came together as a piece from beginning to end that many, many years later I decided to share with the world. What of the events in your history, in addition to the divorce, which is difficult for anybody to to endure, uh, motivated you to continue on this journey and and, uh, discover things about yourself that perhaps you wanted to discover or needed to discover? You know, I I think I had lived a very um, blessed and easy life, to be honest, up until my divorce. And that was sort of the rug being pulled out from beneath me and me facing the challenges and complexities of a grief process and everything I thought was sort of real and my life plan and everything kind of came tumbling down and so it was a real bringing me to my knees moment and that combined with the work that I was doing as a family lawyer working with other people going through separation and divorce and my belief was emerging that we do get second chances and we do get opportunities for new beginnings and how was I going to forge out a second chance or a new beginning for me when it didn't feel possible. So intellectually, I knew it was possible. And I'd seen many of my clients, you know, sort of move through the grief process and move on to a better platform, but I didn't feel it. 
Are you still involved with horses? Uh, you have a background of uh, horse and rider. That was an allergy that you, you also included in your book. Yeah, I've always had a love of horses and spent years riding every day. And I don't have horses in my life now other than my uh, my niece. I was just up at her barn yesterday watching her ride, and she's now the rider in the family. So I'm connected to horses through her, but don't have horses in my life on a day-to-day basis. Share the story of Cindy Ishoy, the the rider, and uh, her journey. So Cindy is one of the riders that I really looked up to at that time, and she had a beautiful horse named Dynasty, and they were heading into the their first Olympics uh, for their dressage ride. And uh, their, well, when they went through the tunnel, there was just thundering, echoing, clapping sound from all of the audience. And she could feel Dynasty's heart pounding between her thighs in the saddle. And she knew that he was in the fight or flight moment. Mm. And as, a, as an animal who isn't a predator, who's always prey, the flight response in horses is really strong. And in that moment, when she squeezed her legs and asked him to go through his terror and his panic and his worst fear, the trust that he had in her to say, yes, I'll go into that arena of fear and overcome that was really a metaphor of power for me that many times I ended up having to, in my own internal struggle, overcome that same fear and panic like Dynasty did, and trust my dance teacher the way that Dynasty trusted Cindy. What uh, What is the reader going to take from this story besides just your personal tale of uh, you know, survival? I mean, there's more to it than this in this book. It's not just sharing personal experience. It's it's really, I think, the the life lessons of you know when you fall down and picking yourself up and what does that look like when we pick ourselves up and how do what does it actually look and feel like because it's a pretty isolated lonely journey when we're actually experiencing those dark days in our lives and I think Dance Me Beautiful is a little bit of company for that journey a little bit of a hey someone else gets what it's like to break through of our inner restraints and our the bounds we put on ourselves and who we think we can be or should be in that kind of struggle to truly become our authentic selves. And I think for all of us, our authentic selves are far more joyful and compassionate and self-loving and loving to the world than, than we start out being. And so I hope that it's some company and a little bit of a couple of guideposts along the way for others who might be experiencing dark days. Your book is uh, is not just a book for uh, young ladies or uh, females to read. I, although this is a, a beautiful book that has that appearance on the outside, would you describe this as a, an every person book to read? So my answer is yes, but kind of surprisingly, because I think I did think of it as a book that women would resonate with more than men. And uh, at my book launch party, I had... Uh, some of my colleagues come, and these are these are people who have guys who have been lawyers for a long time. And I would say to them, "Well, here, you know, take the book home mm-hmm. to your wife, but right. you're probably not going to want to read it." And uh, the very next day, one of my colleagues sent me an email saying, "You know, you were so wrong. I read that book as soon as I got home, and I couldn't put it down, and read it all in one sitting. And I can't imagine anyone getting more out of it than me." 
So from now on, he made me promise never to say it was a book for women. And I had a uh, a friend of mine whose you know 17 year old son was going through a real challenge. He's a hockey player, and he was going through a real challenge of sort of going out on the rink and not feeling like he put his best in the arena, that mm. he would keep leaving that arena feeling like he hadn't done what he really wanted to do or hadn't skated his heart out. And he ended up finding this book to be his inspiration to go out there and put his best forward and leave nothing left on the rink. And so there were these examples that kept coming up where you know young men or older men were finding the same kind of company and inspiration in this book that I had sort of erroneously thought was more of a woman's book. Well, having grown up in Canada, I just uh, did disclose that, and uh, the uh, hockey uh, description you just you just gave, uh, leaving nothing on the rink, has uh, many many meanings, uh, and I'm sure it inspired him to read your book. What are you hoping will happen with your with your uh, discourse that you have shared in Dance Me Beautiful? I'm hoping two things. I'm hoping, one, that some people who are feeling sad and dark and lonely will feel less alone, and two, that people will feel inspired to find their passion, you know, whether it's dance or hockey or whatever it is, that when you find something you're passionate about and you give yourself that gift of following it, it's crazy where it may take you, but it's always a good place. Absolutely. Describe in perhaps a paragraph or two your writing style in the book. Well, you know, how did you approach this? Uh, are there dance steps in here, which I don't think there are? Uh, how is this going to relate to the reader, and uh, why should they get a copy of it? So it's definitely not a how-to book on dance, and uh, it definitely reads as the, you know, the first-person memoir style uh of writing, and I think it feels like having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with me and hearing my weekly or monthly chats about what I'm going through. So I feel like it's kind of like a cup of tea with a friend, and um, and so that's really what I'm hoping, that people feel some company and feel some inspiration. You've done a wonderful job in condensing down a very difficult time and uh, making a metaphor for life. The title of the book, again, is Dance Me Beautiful. My author, Deborah Graham, who's joined me from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Has your experience in writing the book challenged you to the point where you might want to share an additional book or some other thoughts down the road? It, it does. I, uh, I, am, uh, I am journaling my current uh, dance journey, so who knows what might come of that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, there's a number of chapters. They're very short. Uh, chapters titled like this, the title, Stirring Things Up, the competition, being a spectator. Uh, you have to believe it to see it. Now, that chapter got my attention. What does that uh, entail? Well, I think that there's always that, you know, saying about you have to see it to believe it. And what I was finding over and over again was that I actually had to believe in the possibility before that possibility could come true. And so I had to keep believing that I could break free of these kind of um, disempowering barriers that were holding me back from truly being all that I could be. I had to believe that before I could start to live it and experience it and express it in the world. Wonderful. Inspirational book, Dance Me Beautiful, author Deborah Graham. Deborah, my listeners will need to get a copy of this. How can they do so? Well, they can go to either the iUniverse website or it's also available on Amazon and any of the online booksellers have it both in um, 
and e versions to put on your Kobo and those sorts of things, and also for the hardcover. Excellent. And they can keep in touch with you or at least follow you on any future publications by maybe doing a search under your name. Deborah is D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M. Thank you for joining me today, and best of luck in the future. Please join us again if you, uh, if you produce another work of inspiration. We'd love to talk with you. Will do. Thanks so much. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Erosion, and the author, Julie M. And Julie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Julie. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us, Julie. This is going to be a fascinating discussion about your book, Erosion. Let me read what you've written just to kind of set the stage for everyone. You say, Erosion is the story of a girl whose life is shaped by the choices made for her as a teenager. As she comes of age, these choices lead her on an unpredictable journey of loss, regret, Romance and self-discovery. Uh-huh. Self-discovery, I'm sure, uh, in this in this story, especially since she had such a domineering father. Yes, uh, her father is quite a character. He's uh, very almost militant in his control over her do- over his daughter, and um, he just manipulates her far more than you can possibly imagine. Well, before we get into more details about the story, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. Okay, well, I am a currently a teacher in Edmonton, Alberta with Edmonton Catholic. I teach elementary music to grades 1 to 6, so 6-year-olds to about 12. And uh, I've been teaching for, oh gosh, 21-something years. And uh, this book um, happened at a time in my life where... Um, the work life was great, but my own personal life was kind of falling to pieces. I have two children, and at the time I was married, and it was not a very happy marriage. And um, Kate just kind of came to me. She was this almost like a, not a dream, but just this presence in my life who wouldn't leave me alone. And so I just started writing about her, and and I started writing in uh, about January 2008. And by the time summer rolled around of that year, I had... Um, just reams of an outline and I just started writing and two and a bit years later I had what I thought was a pretty good book as good a book as, as anything I've ever read and 
and then it sat for a year. And um, and I don't know, I just just submitted it. What the heck? And uh, here we are. I think we would all agree with your premise about the influence of our past uh, on mm-hmm. our present and future lives. It is real, and of course, Kate is a great example of it. Yes. Um, you know, Kate is in some ways a lot like me. Her her past is reflective of her her new thinking and her you know her new life towards the end of the book. And I think we can all have we all have moments of during our our history, whether it's our teenage years or young our young adulthood, and into our our uh, our life where um, we're not quite sure who we are, and the people that are involved around us kind of not necessarily manipulate us, but guide us, not necessarily in the right ways. And that's true to ourselves. And I think Kate discovers this. We all do uh, discover this as we grow up. Does her mom just give way to Kate's father? Um, Her mom is um, a very strong personality in her own right. Um, However, she dies when Kate is in her mid-teens. And so her influence is really just in, in memory. And her father certainly takes over. She's that quiet... Um, presence in the background whenever she was alive, but of course once she passes away, her presence... But Kate has Ginny. Yes. Her savior, really. Ginny is her her great aunt, so it's her father's aunt. And uh, her father ships um, Kate away every summer from the time she's five uh, up until she's a teenager. And um, Ginny really saved her by welcoming Kate into her home and loving her like her father never could. Um, and it quite literally saves her life. It gives her something uh, that she can hold on to in her later years. Ginny's ripped from her as, as a 17-year-old. Her father takes her away and doesn't allow her to see Ginny any, any longer. And it's that memory and that love of her aunt that saves Kate and gives her something to hold on to as she goes through the trauma of her life. I'm getting emotional just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> now, do we get to know the reason why her dad struggled in this way so much that he had to control every aspect of Kate's life? Yes. Um, as Kate is uh, an adult, or as she becomes an adult, um, there's a situation in, in the book where she becomes pregnant with her first child, and it's it's not a wonderful situation as, as maternity should be. Um, it's got its own issues that the reader's just going to have to read about. But during that time, she becomes reflective, and I think all new mothers kind of do. And there's a moment that she's she's sitting in her rocking chair, and she's contemplating this new baby that she's carrying, and, and she thinks about her father, who's recently passed away. And, and uh, during that time of his, you know, leading up to his passing, um, he has the opportunity to kind of free himself of all his wrongs and apologize to his daughter and and he confesses to her why he's raised her how how he has and it's really a a very poignant part of the story again i'm getting emotional just talking about it um but it's 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 just a wonderful wonderful way for them to finally connect as a father and daughter really should and of course the theme really emphasizes the power of love yes we we see right at the beginning of the book Ginny's love for Kate. Even though Ginny's not her parent, she has that role in Kate's life. And so that is a very powerful, pure, pure love. And we also see 
in the middle of the book where an Arthur, her father is passing away, how he really truly does love her. But we also see that love that is tarnished and almost ugly because he's not a very good father to her and he's very cruel and mean in so many ways and he's manipulative. And so we see the different facets of love, whether right or wrong, it's exposed. And I think we all have those parts either in our life or on the fringes of our life. And, and so it's... Um, it's just a very powerful theme throughout the book. And you like to throw the reader curveballs. Just when they think they've figured it out, you surprise them. I do. It's very unpredictable. And that's, I think, what keeps the reader captivated. And I think it what it's what hooks them. Um, you know, I'm a new writer, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And so um, as I was rereading the final draft of it, it just it was captivating to me and there was parts where you know I'd almost forgotten about and 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 was delighted when things changed and it was it's wonderful is this just for women no actually I've had several men um read this book in my life and uh, I mean of course these are people that are familiar to me but at the same time having said that they they read it with open eyes and um were were delighted with the book. It was um, not just for women. It appeals to men. There's some characters in there that are just wonderful. There's this Wayne who is, he's just seedy and he's awful and he's hes a guy's character. And I think, not that men can relate to a guy like him because you don't want to be like Wayne, but he's just, it's not all female stuff. It's just, it's a good book for everybody. So it's a book about second chances. Yes. It is. I've had many second chances in my life, and um, these characters have that opportunity to explore second chances as well. And again, it's being true to yourself and taking those second chances for you and not for someone else. And it also addresses alcohol abuse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, there's there's characters in the book who are um, abusive, and they are abusive because of their exposure to alcohol and and to a lesser extent drugs. It's it's alluded to, but not the focus of it. It's mostly alcohol abuse, and and um, it's just it's an awful thing, and it does awful things to people. And you know, as bystanders, you know, we're exposed to people who live that way and suffer the consequences of their behavior. And Kate is one of those people in the book who is on the receiving end of that. Um, abuse and uh, it's it's hard to read sometimes but it's it's really part of life unfortunately now who is Terry you call him pathetic Terry is um, ends up being her husband in the book but Terry's a character who is the son of someone that Kate's father used to work with and he is he's kind of a sad character and he's pathetic in, in his own way but I you know I think some readers will feel um, kind of that he is pathetic and others will really sympathize with him because he's he's just this lost almost little boy that just kind of floats through life and doesn't have control and Arthur puts Kate in his way as a way of kind of helping him he's the son of this old friend and and he thinks that Kate can help him that they can actually help each other and so the parents you know design this way of getting them together and eventually you know Arthur in his control forces Kate and Terry uh, to uh, to be together, and she ends up marrying him, and and all of Terry's issues um, really uh, force 
force Kate to figure out who she is and what the kind of person she wants to be. And in the end, things don't really work, but she's grown as a person by knowing Terry and, and in her way loving him. And through your examples, we, I'm sure, will relate to the fact that our actions have unforeseen consequences. Oh, absolutely. And as a teacher, I mean, I see that all the time. The kids, you know, will do things and they don't know what the consequences are. And and so we live that every day from the time we're little. And Kate, um, Kate is exposed to things that, you know, she she thinks will be fine and will work out. But then there's this character of Wayne, Terry's brother, that comes in and just does these things that she can't fathom how how things are going to settle and and end for her and um it's it's hard to imagine and that gives the the book this unpredictableness to it where you think you've got it figured out and then things happen and you don't know how what consequences are going to happen based on that and they might be you know years later in your own life or in in my case of the book chapters later but um yeah it's the consequences are are interesting <laughs> Well, before we find out the best way to get your book, Julie, tell us in closing a little bit about your philosophy, your view of life. You call it living consciously, which is an overall message of the book. It is. Um, That's something I have honestly struggled with my entire life. I mean, I am nearing my 50s here, and I'm getting much better at it, but it's something I think we all struggle with. And, you know, I alluded earlier in the interview how... You know, my marriage wasn't great. Um, I do have two wonderful children and a good relationship with my ex-husband, but um, living consciously is something I struggled with as as a little person. All through my teenage years, which is the natural years to do that, but I kept struggling with this issue. And um, I think, you know, working through this book and, and living, kind of living through Kate and, and helping her work through the issues that she needed to as a character really helped me um, find my voice find my strengths, um, my own personal conviction to come out of the end of my separation and divorce and, you know, being a single parent for a few years and, um, you know, get back involved in, in life. I've met a man and actually in the last, we got married on July 31st of this past summer and so I'm living consciously now and I'm enjoying every minute of it. What is the best way to get your book, Julie? Erosion. Erosion is available um, at our local uh, retailers in Canada. Um, we're trying to get it on the shelves, and of course, the more interest there is in the book, the more available, readily available it will be. Uh, you, if it's not currently at Chapters and in Indigo, it can be ordered through those uh, stores online. They can bring it in for you, and uh, um, it's available as a, as a Kobo reader, e-reader. And of course, you can go right to iUniverse and order it directly there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for having me. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Radio.